Welcome to Far and Beyond Oregon True Crime, where we explore strange, bizarre, and crazy true crime stories from Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host, Stacy, And I'm your co-host, Valerie. Let's get started. Yes. <laughs> How was your week? Um, it was good. I, I, I'm not sleeping as much as I should, but that's kind of my own fault, but you know, <laughs> staying up late doing research. <laughs> it's actually been over a week since we've recorded. It's probably been closer to a month. Yeah, it's been a little while. We kind of took a little break, but it was nice because uh-huh. I got to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm doing research, I'm up to like midnight, 2 a.m. every morning, every night. So That's not good. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get taken down rabbit holes, and, like, I have to know what happens, so I kind of just keep going and going and going, and, <laughs> yeah, it's a problem for me. Yeah. So this week, we are going to be in Portland, Oregon in the 1960s. Nice. So in the 60s in Portland, Oregon, it, it was kind of the site of an invasion. What kind of invasion? The hippie invasion. <laughs> so I found this very interesting. Um, people who wanted to get back to nature, smoke pot, and eat healthy were coming in droves, and the residents of Portland were not happy about it. <laughs> Nowadays, that's just... <laughs> yeah, it's a total 180 of Portland today, where they're like, eat healthy, get back to nature, we all, let's smoke pot. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, and here we are, what, 70 years later, and it's like, So today they openly embraced all of those things very enthusiastically. It was during the time of this invasion and change that something or someone sinister was lurking. So on June 8th, 1961, in a quiet Portland neighborhood, Miss Alga Lily let her dog out into her backyard. And when she went to call him back into the house, she found him playing with an object wrapped in a newspaper. As in she the moved backyard? In her backyard. Okay. Is it like a fenced-in backyard kind of um, That's what it made it sound like, yeah. It was totally fenced in. Okay. Because she let him out and then came back out to get him later, so I, I would assume it's fenced in. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> she have a really good dog. <laughs> yeah. So, as she moved closer and grabbed the object, something rolled out of the paper. The first thing she noticed was the nail polish on the toes. And when she realized what she was holding, she dropped the severed foot. (laughs) Yeah. Not what you want to find your dog playing with. Yeah. The police were called, and soon around 25 policemen swarmed the neighborhood. They began searching Miss Lily's yard as well as the yard of her, yards of her neighbors. In the search, they discovered another foot, a hand, and part of an arm. Almost three blocks away, part of a thigh was also discovered in a vacant lot. The pieces appeared to belong to a young woman and had only been 24 to 48 hours post-dismemberment, so they were fairly fresh. That is so weird. Why would you leave breadcrumbs of evidence everywhere? Like, someone's easily going to find that, and then they're going to look for more. He's not trying to hide it. Right, yeah. Some of them were found, like, in bushes. Like, he shoved them. Like, an Easter egg hunt kind uh-huh. of thing. And I'm like, why would... What are you thinking? Like, this is weird. Bury it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... At the time, there were only two women who had been reported missing in the area. And 
it was a 24-year-old and a 16-year-old, and neither matched the physical parts found initially. So, like, they took measurements of the parts, and then they got the measurements of the girls that were missing, and they didn't match. Mm-hmm. Um, the mystery woman had been dismembered with a cleaver or a razor blade. How would you do a razor blade? Wouldn't I, that be way too small? I, I'm maybe, thinking more like a scalpel-type razor maybe blade. like one of those giant razor blades they used to, like, shave beards with. Yeah, that that could be. That's probably what they're thinking. Yeah, I, I was like, a razor blade? I'm sitting here thinking this little tiny thing that I used to, like, scrape my mm-hmm. glass. And I'm like, that would take forever. But back then they had those <clears throat> giant ones, too, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So that was kind of according to what the pathologists presumed based on the wounds. Uh, it was almost a week before the remains would be identified, and on Tuesday, June 13th, fingerprints from one of the severed hands was used to identify the remains as those of the missing 24-year-old, Joan R. Cottle. And she wasn't one of the two girls before? She was. Oh, she, she was. She was initially okay. ruled out because the measurements were actually inaccurate. Mm-hmm. If they had done them right, she would have been found out right away. Okay. So this is what Joan looks like. Nice. And if you follow us on Instagram, we'll have her picture up there. She was a very sweet looking girl. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born Joan Ray Cheever on September 8th, 1936 to Wayne and Betty Cheever. And when Joan was around 10, her family lived in the Astoria area where her dad worked as a truck driver. And it was around... Uh, when she was like 10 to 15, he was uh, drafted into World War One, And at some point they moved to the Portland area where she attended the girls polytechnic high school. So it's all girls. Mm-hmm. They were and there. She was involved in the Aramaic Aramaic club, which is actually a photography club because Aramaic is camera spelled backwards. They thought they oh, were super okay. clever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, the Time Turners and S- Circle Mortrice. I have no idea what either one of those were. I couldn't find anything on those. Um, she was involved in Junior Red Cross, where she was the treasurer. Um, and she appeared to have studied clothing and marriage. <laughs> and I have no idea. I was like, what does it mean to study clothing and marriage? Do men have to study marriage? Uh, No, just the women. And, you know, as I looked into this, because I went down a huge rabbit hole on this, because stuff like this just just bugs me to no end. (laughs) It was only in the 60s, too. I feel like they should have been a little bit better. This was the 50s. Oh, okay. Uh, So it was a little bit. It was right around the time women were like, "Uh uh-uh, we can work, we're smart, we can do this. Women were said um, in this time period to only go and get a higher education beyond high school in order to get an MRS degree, mm-hmm. which is a Mrs. degree. What's In that? order to obtain a better husband, they went to college what? to basically learn how to be better wives. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There were some women that actually, at this time, were starting to graduate, become professors, and become scientists, but it was like a slow movement. Mm-hmm. But, but at this time, they thought any girl is going to college is just going to become a better wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not why I went to college. <laughs> Um, she would actually graduate in 1954. Um, that same year, on February 5th, which I don't know if she graduated in June like normal, because February 5th she would have still been in high school. Mm-hmm. But she married Lawrence P. Um, Cadle, 
or Cottle, sorry, in Vancouver, Washington. And a few months later, on June 7th, she gave birth to a baby girl named Leslie Ann. Unfortunately, she was only 29 weeks old and only lived a day and a half. So my guessing with doing the math, she actually became pregnant in November of the year before, before Mm -hmm. she got married. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering if that's, there's some connections going on there. (laughs) Given the time period, single moms were very looked down on. It's not a bad thing to be a single mom. It's a hard thing, but it's not a bad thing. Three years after that, Joan and Lawrence would have another child, a son born June 2nd, 1958, and the following year they would have another baby girl. So they had two living children and one that didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Three days after her son's third birthday, Joan went out shopping for a Father's Day gift for her father. She had $100 in her purse and went downtown. She called her husband later that evening to let him know she was going to stop at a cocktail lounge on her way home, and then she'd be home after that. That would be the last time that her husband and children would hear from her. Lawrence reported his wife missing on Wednesday, June 7th. He reported she had gone downtown carrying the $100 to go shopping on Monday evening. And there are conflicting reports as to when he reported her missing, because it seems kind of weird that if she was missing Monday night and you wait till Wednesday morning the whole Mm -hmm. day. I mean, she is an adult, but um, some reports said he actually reported her on the day she went missing. Some reports said it was the day morning after she went missing, but sometime between the 5th and the 7th, for sure, he called the police and filed a missing persons report. Mm -hmm. Tragically, seven days after her daughter went missing, Betty Cheever, Joan's mother, would pass away one day before her daughter was identified as the dismembered body. One day before? One One day before. So she would never, she didn't know they found her daughter's body. Okay. Well, that's kind of good that you don't know she's dead. Like, she still died with hope. You don't know where she is. Yeah, I guess she died with hope. But you just don't have any answers. You just... Mm -hmm. And um, from what I can tell, she died of some form of cancer. So it was kind of expected. Mm -hmm. But it's still very tragic. Um, Now that they had identified the remains, police began looking into Joan's disappearance and subsequent murder. They started by questioning her husband and friends close to Joan, because that's just where you start. (laughs) In tracing her movements on June 5th, police were led to the lounge she had mentioned in her call home and the last place she had been seen alive. Police questioned the lounge barmaid. I have trouble with that word, too, because she's technically just a bartender. (laughs) But. I digress. Uh, She told the police that she had seen Joan on the 5th and she was drinking with a man and she knew the name of that man. His name was Richard Marquette. Marquette. So, like, everybody knew each other in this bar? (laughs) Apparently. Apparently he was a regular, sounds like. Okay. So, uh, Richard Lawrence Marquette was no stranger to law enforcement. He had been arrested in the past several times. The first time was on January 1956 for attempted rape. He was arrested, then released because no charges were filed. So, later he served five days for disorderly conduct, and then on November 29th, 1957, he was convicted of assault with intent to rob, and he served one year in prison. He was described as a six foot one man weighing about 162 pounds. 
He had blue eyes and brown hair, and he had mom tattooed on his right forearm. That's that's a bad sign right there. And he had tattoo mom, I think. <laughs> is that his only tattoo too? <laughs> that's just the only one they mentioned is mom, and it was like wrapped in floral or something like that. It was like, oh boy. <laughs> or he had formerly been employed as a logger, um, kind of a jack of all trades, and a meat packer. Correlation? Correlation, yes. <laughs> yeah, in some of the reports, it made it sound like the body parts were wrapped up very similar to the way you would package. Mm. Yeah. It was not only his record that drew the police to Mar- Marquette, they questioned co-workers at his current place of employment, um, Hodes Auto Records. Uh, one of the co-workers told the police Wednesday, June 14th, that Marquette had not shown up for work the last few days and had been acting strange since the day the remains of Joan had been found. It was the combination of this information that led police to search Marquette's home on the on 27th Avenue, just 12 blocks from where the remains were found initially. Was he home during that time? No, he had he was skipped town. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he, he hadn't gone to work, they didn't find him at home. Uh, he lived in a small two-room house, um, but it was at this house that police made a gruesome discovery. By himself, he lived there? Uh, from the sounds of it, yeah. Okay. Not with mom. <laughs> uh, in the freezer compartment of Marquette's fridge, wrapped in a duffel bag, they found 11 more pieces of Joan's remains. Why did he separate them into 11 pieces? I think his plan was to disperse them slowly. Yeah. That's even worse. I know. I don't don't know what he was thinking, honestly. It's just kind of like, yeah, I don't know why he kept all her body parts. It seems very, very, very serial Mm killer-y. From the new remains, police were able to determine that Joan had been strangled and stabbed. Marquette had, like, to carry a large jackknife measuring six to eight inches, and it was believed that it was this blade that was used in the killing. Mm-hmm. Do you know how it happened? Um, he does give an account later. Okay. Sort of. Because I'll forget if I don't ask now. <laughs> <laughs> um, police found aspects of this murder were very reminiscent of the murder of, uh, Larry Payton on Lover's Lane just one year before. Remember the Payton Allen murders we Mm -hmm. talked about? Yeah, he was one of the suspects because of this. But um, other than a few similarities, there was nothing substantial to tie him to the Payton Allen murder, so it never went anywhere. Is that one we did on the show? Yeah, we did that one, um, I believe, two weeks ago. Okay. A warrant was quickly issued for Marquette. And the manhunt would begin. He had family in Albany, and his mother lived in Portland. But it sounded like his family was just as afraid of him as the general public was. But -hmm. despite this, police kept a close eye on both those areas, just in case. The next day, the FBI became involved in the case, issuing their own warrant for illegal flight to avoid prosecution. Tips came in from one of his friends that mentioned that he might run to California. Helicopters were used to search the banks of the port of the rivers in Portland, and the Harbor Patrol searched from the ground. Uh, Oregon's Governor Hatfield appealed to the FBI to add Marquette to their top ten most wanted list due to the heinousness of his crimes. 
The request was actually granted on June 25th, and the FBI's top 10 list was actually expanded to the top 11. And it's kind of interesting, because they never really do that. <laughs> they just kind of stuck it on there like a post-it note. Yeah, they, they like hung it right underneath all the other... They're like, well, we don't want to get a new board for just this one... We're just going to stick it underneath. We're going to make it work. Guys. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we'll put this picture on our Instagram, too. It's I, I found it kind of funny. It's why I kind of threw it in there. I was like, let's not get a new board for this one, guys. <laughs> Come on. We're going to catch one of them, and then we'll just kind of move everything. It's only the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> we have a very small budget right now. Yeah. <laughs> So on Friday, June 30th, Richard applied for a job at a salvage yard in Santa Maria, California. And this led to the FBI being tipped off and they were able to swoop in and arrest him. Why would you apply to a job if he's on the run? It doesn't sound very smart. I get that you need an income, but I feel like there are better ways to do it than official paperwork. Oh, just wait to find <laughs> out how he got there. I mean, it's he's just not very smart. <laughs> And this actually happened one day after he was put on the FBI's top 11 most wanted. So they really only had to hang him up for one day. So they made a good choice not buying a new board. I have to say. (laughs) Um, When he was arrested, he was still armed with his jackknife. um, But he didn't put up a a fight. He was quoted as saying, I knew the FBI would get me sooner or later. So he was just kind of like, yeah, you got me. A man named Clark Powell had given Marquette a ride on June 14th as he hitchhiked. Powell had a partner named Harvey Allen who gave Marquette a temporary job until the day he recognized him from the FBI most wanted poster and turned him in. Marquette said he had been in Mexico but was on his way home to Oregon. (laughs) And get this, in Santa Maria while he was working at that job? He didn't have a place to stay, so he slept overnights in the local jail. Voluntarily! <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, oh my gosh. Uh, but, but, you know, once the FBI got involved and they got wanted posters out, he was caught. Hanging out with the people who could get you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're like right under their nose. This just tells you how disconnected police departments were. And they still kind of are. They're better than they were, but they were so disconnected, it took forever for them to get any information. Ugh, just, it drives me nuts. <laughs> uh, his extradition papers were signed the next day by Oregon's governor. He actually came back early from an event in Hawaii, like a governor's conference, just to sign the papers to get the guy back. Because they're like, we need him back, we need to try him, we need to just get this done. And his bail was set at $100,000. And plans were made to return Marquette to Oregon as soon as possible because he decided not to fight extradition. He's like, yeah, just take me back. He was questioned about the murders by the FBI agents in California, and Marquette gave a few statements. First, he said he was out of his head drunk, and once he noticed what he had done, he panicked. That's his reasoning for dismembering her. Uh, He insinuated that there was a connection between him and Joan, saying it was the first time he'd seen her in 13 to 14 years since grade school. So I think they went to school together at some Mm -hmm. point. Uh, He was in the bar drinking when she came in, and he recognized her. From there, they went bar to bar. Marquette said he really wasn't sure who picked up who, whether he picked her up or she picked him up. 
Um, but once he had drunk himself to the point he was sick, they returned to his house. What do you mean, pick her up? Pick him up? Like, who was like, hey, who who got who was interested in who first kind of thing? Oh, but they're interested in each other? Yeah, it's from what it sounded like. Okay. Because, you know, you go to a bar and a guy picks up on you or you pick up on a guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't sure which way it went. <clears throat> yeah. So, she was drinking, too, at the bars? Yes, she was drinking, too. Okay. And he drank to the point that he was sick. <laughs> Why you would drink that much, I don't know. Um, a new person, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, when they got to his house, they argued. And when he awoke the next morning, he saw what he had done and wished he had never seen her, but it was all water under the bridge now. Like, he realized what he'd done and then he killed her? Yes, he and he wished that her. he'd never seen her at the bar. Okay. He's like, well, it's water under the bridge now. I've done it, so we got to figure out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so shook up, he was unable to work. That's why he didn't go to work. He was he was fragile. <laughs> yeah. He's fragile, but he can chop up all <laughs> He was shook up, but he, he could cut her up, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm shook up. I'm leaving it there, and I'm running away. <laughs> uh, he took a bus to L.A., then San Diego, and finally to Tijuana, Mexico, where he spent a week. Then he returned to the U.S., giving his real name at the border <laughs> while they're searching for him. <laughs> From there, he hitchhiked to Santa Maria. Like I said, he's not very smart. <laughs> So he was in Mexico for a while? He was in Mexico for a whole week, and then I guess decided it wasn't for him and wanted to go home. Why didn't he stay in Mexico? I, I don't know if he thought maybe, you know, it's been a week, it's all blown over now. <laughs> in a week. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't even identified her in a week. I know, they still, at that point, were like, we don't know who she is. <sighs> yeah. By the evening of July 1st, Marquette was on a plane headed back to Portland. And at this point, most of Joan had been recovered except for her head. Sunday morning, Marquette led the police to an area near Oaks Park Amusement Park. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been was? there, yeah. Yeah. We've been there. Um, it was a very swampy area right along the river there. Uh-huh. And he had discarded her head when the water was up high, but they were actually able to recover it three miles south of where the rest of her had been found. So they did find her head. Thankfully, so all of her was found. Uh, police indicated Marquette had re- confessed, but they did not want to release his full statement, which the police normally don't. Uh, Marquette could not afford an attorney, so the state appointed George Van Humason, I think is how you say that, mm-hmm. and Stephen King. <laughs> Not the author. <laughs> I looked to make sure, just in case Stephen King was an attorney before he was an author. Just in, in case Oregon. he had a law degree. Yeah, I'm like, I want to check. There's actually a lot of Stephen King lawyers out there. Do you know that? No, I didn't. There were several of them that popped up. I was like, huh. Okay. Um, they were appointed as his attorneys. While waiting for Marquette to enter a plea, the final pieces of Joan, there were just a few left, um, were discovered on July 20th and loaned for a cemetery. So thankfully she was completely recovered. Um, Humason and King petitioned the court to move Marquette from Rock Butte Jail, which is like just outside of Portland, to a court to the courthouse jail for easier access to their client because they couldn't be bothered to drive a few miles. 
He was denied this due to the courthouse jail not being up to federal standards of security. Good call on the judge's part. The attorney also requested copies of the statements that Marquette made to law enforcement. But the judge denied this request as well, stating that the statements were not signed by Marquette, so they weren't technically a confession. They were only notes that the officers took, so they did not have to be turned over. I kind of have a problem with this. I feel like they should be turned over even if they're just notes, though. Yes, and especially when we get to the trial part, I feel like this was a big miscarriage. I mean, he did it. He was probably read his Miranda rights. Why can't they use his what he said in court. Right, that's how I feel then. That should have been turned over to the attorneys. Mm -hmm. Uh, After being denied the chance to review the statements, the attorneys asked for a delay in giving the plea because they wanted to know what he confessed to before they entered a plea. Yeah. So they knew how to plea. This request was actually granted, but the judge said it would not be granted again. It was actually the second request to delay the trial. They had delayed it once before. There was another reason they wanted the second delay. Marquette's attorneys wanted him to undergo psychiatric tests before they entered the plea. Mm -hmm. Finally, on October 2nd, Marquette entered a plea of not guilty. And then on November 21st, he updated his plea to a plea of innocence by reason of insanity. So this is what Marquette looks like. Actually, a good looking guy. I mean, I can yeah, see why she would stop and. He doesn't look super like who you'd expect. You no. Know? He doesn't he's, look like a serial killer. He, he's one of those that's like hiding in plain sight. He looks like he could be violent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not openly. Yeah, at the same time, it's. Okay, not to sound horrible, but he honestly sounds like one of those um, husbands that's like great guy up in front, but then he beats his wife behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. That's what he looks like to it me. Looks, it looks like he's wearing a wife beater tank top right there <laughs> underneath his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what it looks like. So I guess you could say he does look like a horrible person. Uh, the trial began November 27th with jury selection taking two days. They ended up with a jury of nine men and two women. And in the opening statement, the prosecuting attorney, Julian Herodin, stated they were seeking the death penalty. And they would attempt to prove Joan was murdered in the course of a criminal assault, attempted criminal assault, and that they believed that Marquette had killed Joan by either beating, strangulation, or decapitation. (laughs) I, I don't know why they couldn't pick one. I'm actually doing jury duty pretty soon. My first time being called up. Oh, really? Yes, which is oh, weird. How exciting. Yeah. I've been called up, but I've never done it. Really? They didn't pick you? Um, the first time I was going into surgery, so they let me go. Or they didn't make me come in. And then the second time, they settled out of court. Okay. I, like, went in and waited three hours, and then they settled <laughs> out of court. And I'm like, just wasted half my day. Okay. <laughs> Um, the statements to the defense was denied being shown. The, attor- the statements the attorneys tried to get were actually brought into court when the officers testified in court detailing what Marquette told them. This is why I have an issue with them not getting them. If you're going to bring them into court, they need to have access to it too. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying because he's innocent. I'm saying because even if you're guilty, you deserve a fair and proper trial. Yeah. If we're going to have any faith in the justice system, everything needs to be fair. Um, a reporter actually testified that Marquette had told him that this was the first dead person he'd ever seen in his life. So, kind of indicating that this is the first time he's done something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state actually called a total of 41 witnesses, which is kind of a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the defense began their case That's by... That's a lot. Yeah, 41. That, that must have took a long time. Mm-hmm. Did that take a long time? I, um, I didn't... It doesn't say when they started theirs. Oh, the trial ended on December 13th, so... You have to question all of them and then do a cross-examination. They must have been fairly quick. It was like two weeks, I think, was the trial. Oh, okay. So... It's not too bad for 41 witnesses. Yeah. Some of them probably just had quick things to say. Mm-hmm. The defense began their case by stating they would submit evidence that showed Marquette could not be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That they also planned to go into Jones' character and Marquette's mental and emotional abilities. Again, I have issues here. They actually brought witnesses to testify that they had seen Joan with numerous men that weren't her husband at many different bars on many different occasions. Why does that matter? It doesn't. They were basically trying to (laughs) slut shame her, basically saying that she deserved this. She brought it upon herself. And I'm just like, that is not true or not okay. That's not a justification for that. (laughs) No. Just because she likes to sleep with other men doesn't mean she deserved to die. (laughs) There is no correlation there. Was she a bad wife? Um, yeah. But... (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't stand when they do stuff like that. It's like, does it matter? Mm-hmm. They, they, you don't get to decide that that means they need to die. Yeah. There was also testimony on Marquette's school ability. Uh, he dropped out of school in the 10th grade, and at the time he dropped out, his reading was at a second grade level. So that okay. kind of tells you where his intelligence was. The doctor that performed the evaluation on Marquette testified that he presented as a simple schizophrenic. Simple? What does that mean? I don't know. Like, he wasn't complex. He was just... I don't know. Yeah, like, oh, that's obviously a schizophrenic. <laughs> well, and he just said... He's standard. <laughs> he's standard. He's not complex. He's not... He's just standard. Um, he said he likely, he didn't know at the time of the killing that he was doing something wrong. He didn't know right from wrong at the time of the killing. Mm-hmm. Basically is what that diagnosis says, is what he said. Today on Val's Snacks, we have <laughs> lemon pepper tuna. And it smells like tuna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. In this small room. It smells like tuna. <laughs> it does now. <laughs> Ooh, so bad. Okay. <laughs> Back to our story. Uh, December 13th, the jury went into deliberation. Two days later, after 28 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. To me, that took a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think... I'll, I'll, I'll comment on it in a minute. But there's 41 witnesses. 
Like, it's all long. You can tell there's a lot to it. Yeah, but he kind of obviously did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not one of those where you're like, mm, mm, maybe he did. It's kind of like, he did it. Um, they found her body parts in its freezer. I mean, it's not like he found her on the side of the road and decided, I'm just going to cut her up and put her in my freezer. I didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. I just cut her up and put her in my freezer. There's no way around that. <laughs> yeah. They found Marquette guilty, but they recommended prison over the death penalty. And I think this is what took them so long, was deciding his sentencing. Did they decide that? Does the jury decide that? They give a recommendation. Oh, okay. Um, Four days after he was convicted, the judge sentenced him to life in prison, and he was transferred to the state penitentiary in Salem. Is he still alive? We're not done. Oh, okay. <laughs> he could still be alive. <laughs> so in prison, Marquette was a model prisoner. William Newell, the chairman of the State Board of Parolees, said, quote, he did a terrific job inside the institution, end quote. <clears throat> it was because of this and other praises by other guards and... Um, the correction and people in the correctional facility that with a vote of two to one, Richard Marquette with a life sentence was granted parole in 1972, November 1972. What happened to the schizophrenia? <laughs> it disappeared. Was he ever treated for it? Not that I know of. So, but how long was he in jail before they released <sighs> him in parole? 12 years on a life sentence. Mm hmm. Uh, we would next hear about Marquette, and that would be in July of 1974, about two years after he was paroled, and he would be pulled over for a blood alcohol level of 0.15 or higher. It doesn't say what exactly it was, but it was at least 1.5 or 0.15. Um, but the charges were actually dismissed, which I don't know how mm-hmm. on a parolee any kind of charge can be dismissed. Mm-hmm. It's like you get anything, you're supposed to be put back in jail, I thought. Mm-hmm. But um, at the time, the legal limit for alcohol was 0.1. So he was like only 0.05 above it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's why. but Still quite a bit. Yeah. So that is the first half of our story. We have a story next week that is going to tie into the story. Is it like a part two kind of thing? Kind of a part two kind of thing, yes. Another young this? woman who was very similarly killed. So, we will um, talk about that next week. But until then, keep it weird, keep it strange, keep it safe.